Welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, the show where we ask big questions. And do we get answers? Sometimes. But that's not the point. The point is asking big questions uh, about our political institutions. Today, the big question is filibuster or filibusted? Wow. Wow. That was good. Huh? That was good. So do we like the filibuster? Do we don't like Do we don't like the filibuster? I'm Lee Drutman, senior fellow at New America. I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. I'm Julia Azari, associate professor of political science at Marquette University. All right. So filibuster or filibuster, James? I'm a pro filibuster. Julia? I, I'm kind of neutral on the filibuster because I, I feel like it's sort of, you know, if we're going to have a Senate, that's that's the larger problem. Ooh, <laughs> always always kicking it up a notch. I know. I know. That's Julia. All right, I'm gonna say let's just get rid of filibuster. Although you know, I, I have an openness to to some halfway measures like the the super bill, which I hope we'll talk about, which is the idea that the uh, majority party gets one super bill that's filibuster proof. So all right, filibuster. Can, can we do a quick capsule history, James Walner? Well, everyone remembers the iconic moment in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington where Jimmy Stewart, uh, Jefferson Smith in the movie, is on the floor of the United States Senate and he's and he's filibustering. He's talking and he's haggard and he has, you know, his his face, he has a beard coming in, he's he's disheveled, uh, and he's about to collapse. And he's filibustering. And that's what we think of as uh, filibusters. And for most of the Senate's history, in fact, there was no way to end a filibuster. It wasn't until 1917 when the Senate adopted a, a rule change to allow its members to end debate over the objections of an individual senator who was speaking or seeking recognition to speak in, to, in debate. And they gave it a supermajority threshold uh, because it was such a touchy issue. But over, over, the to- over the years, we've come to associate in our minds filibustering with speaking until you're absolutely exhausted and you're just preventing the, uh, the majority from acting. And I just want to challenge our listeners to, to think about the filibuster a little bit differently. And there's a political science way of thinking about it in terms of just stopping whatever it is out there. But at the end of the day, a filibuster requires effort and action on behalf of the minority party to do something. But we think about it today like it's a veto. And and ever since the cloture rule came about in 1917, that's where that's where we've been intellectually, I think. And I, and I think that's a big part of the problem. So are you saying that filibusters should actually require people to talk for as long as they can talk until they collapse or wet themselves? Well, they, they already do. I mean, the Senate rules already have this. So prior to 1917, the Senate rules have no mechanism like the House of Representatives has to end debate on, on a question, on a bill, for instance. And after 1917, we have a cloture rule where you file cloture. And if you can get 16 of your col- or 15 of your colleagues with you, that's 16 senators, uh, you file cloture on a bill or a question. And then after several days, there's a vote on that. And if you get the required number of votes today, it's typically 60, three-fifths of senators duly chosen and sworn. Then there's another period of uh, up to 30 hours. And then at the end of that, there's a, a vote. In the House, it's called the previous question. It happens all at once. So, but- there, Can I jump but, in for one second here? Yeah. I want to. I want to. I want to plug my own work. This is my favorite thing to jump in uh, to do. But in 2012, I wrote 
a paper with my late co-author Jennifer Smith about informal rules in American politics. And one of the informal rules that we note is is a sort of informal rule that it takes 60 votes to do anything in the Senate that emerges after the change in the 70s that that moved the the cloture threshold down to 60 votes. And that's so that that formal change was a necessary but not sufficient condition for this filibuster norm to emerge. So I think it's it's hard to talk about this without talking about the informal rules and expectations that emerge around congressional rules. And the second thing I want to point out, which is very important and extremely serious, is that I was on a Facebook thread earlier this week where there was an in-depth discussion of of peeing uh, during filibusters. And there was the question was about whether you would get arrested if you peed on the Senate floor. Well, and, speech and debate clause, right? Um, right. Speech and debate clause. Yes. Someone brought in the speech and debate clause. Anyway, I don't think this was a conclusive. This thread didn't come to any conclusions. I'm pretty sure it was on Facebook and not Twitter, but I could be wrong. I don't know. I just watched it with actually with with some amount of horror. I'm not going to lie. Um, and since this is a podcast about raising questions, I thought I would I would raise that question. I think that's an excellent question. And it actually helps connect uh, what I was saying in response to Lee, which is that you have things in the Senate rules that say you can only, there's a rule 19, that you can only speak twice in one legislative day on a given question. That's been there for a very long time. You also have physical limitations, right? The longest filibusters in history, Strom Thurmond was 24 hours and 18 minutes against the Civil Rights Act of 1957. And I'm not sure how many of our listeners or you or Lee or Julia, how long you could speak on the Senate floor standing up with the lights turned on and everybody looking at you. And you add to that the two speech rule limitations, you add to that other things that are in the Senate rules, and you begin to see why the filibuster wasn't as debilitating, or at least not in the sense we think of it today, in the 19th century, when they didn't have, they had no way to end debate over the objections of a minority. They had no closure process. And if you look at it, and I think Warrow and Schickler's uh, excellent book on the filibuster shows this, the coalitions were actually much smaller. They were majority coalitions. They weren't super majority coalitions like we have today. And it's odd because you would think if there's no way to end debate, then shouldn't you have a, a super, super majority coalition to pass a bill in the end? Hmm. That's a real puzzler. Well, I think it comes down to the politics of effort. Well, yeah. Also, the the way that the filibuster has been used in recent years is basically it, it's been treated as a way for the minority party to veto what the majority party is doing, not for an individual principled senator to get up and say, I want to go on for 24 hours because this point is so important to me personally. You could think of the filibuster making sense in an open Senate in which things are bottom up and and not highly partisan. But like in the current Senate, the, the way McConnell runs the Senate, the way Reid runs the Senate, like what what's the point of having a filibuster? It just is functionally a minority veto, not an individual point of principle. It's a minority party veto. And that's how it operates now. Am I right? It operates that way, but only because we allow it. It's not theoretically, okay, well, it's not a veto. Why do we allow it? Uh, well, that, that gets into a whole yes. kind of deeper. But we allow it because the, the organization of Congress is fundamentally partisan now, and individual members give the power to their party leaders because they don't want to take responsibility for themselves. And they depend on the party to get reelected. I want to jump in with a couple of things here. And it's I, I don't think I'm going to talk anymore about 
peeing. Although I will point out that I've definitely left a 75 minute class um, to use the restroom. So I would not be good at filibustering. But, you know, I have a couple, I have a question about the way, about the historical nature of the Senate, because it seems to me that one of the, one of the advantages of an actual physical filibuster, which we've sort of seen make a very small resurgence in the last couple of years, there's been, been a couple, right? There was Ted Cruz, sort of a famous one in 2013. Don't, don't forget Bernie Sanders, 2010. Yeah. Ted Cruz is the fourth, the fourth longest which may, filibuster which, in history. Which may, be, which may be why Sanders likes the filibuster, because that, that long speech that he gave in 2010 kind of helped to elevate his profile. Right, because he has more energy at 78 than I have at 40, so that's embarrassing. But that seems to be true of some of these older politicians. But So my question is, if now it seems like the filibuster is a pretty valuable kind of messaging tool, right? The way that current politics works is very message-oriented. So what could be better than having 24 hours to message um, or however long you can stand there, 13, whatever? You know, how has that shifted over the history of the of the Senate is one of my questions. And then the other thing, I think this is more of a comment than a question, is that the partisan dimension of this also to me seems very interesting given it, it has a very decidedly post-New Deal feel to it, which is a, a sort of vision of government where, where the end goal is always quote unquote getting things done. And then more recently, that's become very much concentrated in democratic ideology. Matt Grossman and Dave Hopkins have written about this, for example. And so you do see this kind of debate among Democrats about getting rid of the filibuster that's about removing, it's very capital P progressive, right? It's about removing the the constraints and the obstacles to getting things done. So I guess that's sort of my, again, that's sort of more of a comment, and I'm not sure what the question is, but to what degree it maps onto these partisan divisions. let me let me bring that into a question. Is there an asymmetry to the filibuster? Right? Does the filibuster is does the filibuster inherently help Republicans? Because Republicans mostly seem to want to stop legislation, whereas Democrats actually want to create new laws. Well, I think even to get rid of laws, you have to pass laws. Well, and, and depending you, on you, who's proposing the laws, the other side's going to want to stop them. But I think, Lee, you made an excellent point earlier, which connects, uh, I think, very nicely with, with something Julia just said, which is that the filibuster isn't necessarily a, a, pow- a tool for individual senators. We think of it that way, the ability to speak in debate. Well, you can only talk for so long. It, it doesn't allow you to do that. You can't block cloture, really, which is how we think of the filibuster today. You can't block cloture with just one senator. You need a party to do that. You need organization. And I think that is related to, to a point that Julia just made, which is that the cloture rule in 1917 was intended to empower the majority. It was intended to empower majorities who wanted to act. And it does a whole host of things that we see. And it, it allows them to set the schedule. It provides a certain amount of certainty. It allows, the, I think, the two leaders today to maintain more control over the chamber than they otherwise could or would be able to in the absence of it. And so when you begin to measure the number of filibusters, and there's been a huge explosion in filibusters lately over the past, say, two or three decades, it looks a little different because that explosion is simply the number of cloture votes or cloture motions that have been filed. And if you actually look, I'm not sure I've seen that many filibusters. I'm sure I've not, I've not seen that many dedicated uh, group of senators, whether one, two, or a few or many, who are trying to stop something. And not just speaking like Jimmy Stewart, but actually making motions and doing all of this other stuff. And I think just... Real quickly, the way the Senate operates is that 
there are these rules there and everybody knows there's the rules there and they're kind of cumbersome and nobody wants to go through them. So what they ultimately do, the senators, is that they end up negotiating a different way and they set the rules aside. And those are and they lock that in these things called unanimous consent requests. And the Senate operates exclusively that way, it seems like these days. The problem is there's some issues you just can't deal with in a unanimous consent request. You can't get consent. A liberal, a conservative, a moderate, a senator from Idaho, a senator from Texas may object. And so you're blocked from moving forward on that unless you introduce a bill and you file cloture on it and you run the clock. And that's, I think, where we are today. Well, part of the problem is that the majority party just doesn't bring a lot of stuff up for a vote because they know unless they have 60 votes, they're not going to be able to override cloture. So what's the point of using up all that time if they're not going to be able to pass the bill to to a floor vote anyway, right? So a lot of stuff just winds up being kept off the agenda. So, I mean, we'd probably see more cloture votes if the, the, the majority introduced more bills, right? But this is... it. I mean, maybe we're just maybe this is. I don't know. Real quick, it's a sea change in how we look at how we look at the process, though. Harry Reid, the Democratic Majority Leader in 2010, didn't have or 2009 at the time, didn't have the votes to pass the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, he doesn't have the votes, but he wants to pass the bill, and so he's like, "Well, the only to pass a bill, I have to try to pass a bill," and so he puts the bill on the floor. He starts pushing the process through, and he starts going through these multiple cloture votes and other things, and eventually. You get outcomes that way. Well, when you try to resolve the most controversial decisions that divide your party or both parties behind closed doors in a private setting, it becomes harder to to get outcomes. Well, well let's talk. I mean, let's talk about the Affordable Care because that's a great example. That McConnell said from the beginning, we are not going to have our fingerprints on this bill because we want to draw a sharp contrast between what the Democrats stand for and what we want to stand for. So there was a, a long rope-a-dope process where you know, the Obama administration said, oh, let, let's keep trying to work with Chuck Grassley. And Chuck Grassley says, eh, I'll kind of play ball, but then I won't. And he, oh, it's you know Lucy and the football over and over and over again. Then Kennedy dies, and then Democrats lose the 60-vote the majority. And what do they do? Eventually, they just say, screw the Republicans. They're not taking this process of negotiating seriously. So we're just going to pass it through reconciliation. So then the question is, you know, now that's that's my liberal democratic perspective. Maybe you feel that the Democrats weren't willing to play ball with the Republicans, but wherever you put the blame, it's clear that that the way that the Senate used to work in which there was some give and take is not how it works now. And that if the filibuster is just used by the minority party to stop the majority party, then it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. And more and more stuff is being done through reconciliation or other ways around the filibuster. So maybe the filibuster is dead anyway. And it's just an excuse for Mitch McConnell not to bring a bunch of bills to the floor that might divide the Republican Party, in which case then it's an obstacle to action. I want to let Julia in on this. But what I'll say about the Affordable Care Act is simply, it looks a lot different from the outside than it does on the inside. And at the time, I think there was something like 18 substantive unanimous consent requests to put up amendments, side-by-side amendments, a Democratic and Republican amendment, to, to set the, the votes to adopt those amendments at 60. So they're designed to fail and to move on. And Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell negotiated those unanimous consent requests every single day. And they and the process was very cooperative, and it was, it was agreed upon to begin with. And 
even at the end, when Harry Reid switched to cloture on the final underlying bill in 2009, um, prior to Christmas, it was, it was, as you said, it was designed to make it look like there was a lot more opposition and difference and distinction between the parties than there really was. And had, I think we actually tried to say there was a minority that was capable of blocking that bill with 41 votes. If Reid would have leaned into them, I'm not sure that majority would have, that minority would have been around for that long. I think if he would have said, we're going to be here through Christmas, we're going to be here on Saturday and Sunday, we're going to vote at three in the morning. If he brought out the cots, I'm not sure how much, how long the Republicans would have fought that bill. And my guess is it probably would have passed the 75, 80 votes. Really? Yeah. And I, and I think that, I think that's the real tragedy of how we think about what the Senate does today is that we, we, it's not necessarily the right, the ability to filibuster and speak that's the problem. It's the, it's the expectation that this is going to be easy. It should happen automatically and we should be able to wrap it all up in a unanimous consent request. And if somebody objects, that's, that's obstruction. And I think that's problematic. I think that's the bigger problem, but so, I don't know. What do you think? So Julia? senators are a bunch of wusses. That's the problem. Julia? What do I think of what? Senators are a bunch of wusses. Senators are a bunch of wusses. I mean, I, this kind of goes back to what I was saying about the, the messaging environment. Right. Like that's I think that's sort of the the challenge there is like everything. I'm not going to phrase this. I'm not going to phrase this very well because I am much less of a Senate watcher than either of you two and especially James. But it seems to me like the the sort of public politics of being in the Senate have shifted. And that's not just about primaries, but it's about a general kind of partisan environment of, of messaging where it's very difficult to take votes or lead on an issue where there's a possibility that that can be distorted in a, in a political messaging context. I'm a little bit resistant to the idea that people are political, you know, people are less politically courageous than they used to be. Like that just doesn't seem to me to be to be right. But it seems like the the political, the broader, all the different elements of the broader political environment have come together to make it less, you know, less productive to make stances that are about making policy compromise. I know we talk a lot about Frances Lee on this podcast, but her work and her ideas about the parties as kind of conflicting and closely matched teams in Congress seems relevant here. One thing that's interesting about that, and I agree, it's an excellent book, Insecure Majorities, is that the parties aren't behaving that way. They, I think they see the world that way, but they're not behaving that way. Francis uh, writes a lot about the 1980 elections and how Senate mm -hmm. Democrats behaved after the 1980 elections put them in the minority. That's not how Senate Democrats are behaving today. It's not how Senate Republicans behaved when they were in the minority. The parties aren't forcing votes on issues to create distinctions between themselves. They're not, they're not using the tools at their disposal to, to create distinctions on issues over which they are in ostensible agreement. And I think that's the, that's the problem. There's, there was a group of about 70 former senators that wrote an open letter in the Washington Post recently. We'll put this in the show notes. And it was a very curious letter. And about 40% of these senators served or had served in the Senate over the, in the last two decades or so. So during the period um, in which the Senate became more and more dysfunctional. And if you read the letter closely, you'll find that there's, it's, there's no culprit. They bemoan this, you know, the fact that committees can't legislate. They bemoan the fact that, that there's too many filibusters that are threatened in the third person or that are too readily acceded to in the third person. They clarify, they don't think that they are the leaders are to blame per se. They they want this to be seen not as a verdict on the leaders. So if it's not the committees, if it's not the rank and file members, and if it's not the Senate leaders, then who's left? At the end you of the day, me. some senator has to be doing something to stop the process. No one's doing anything, and I think that's the 
that's the remarkable thing. Gridlock happens inside the Senate or inside legislative bodies when there's no action. It's, it's theoretically and practically possible for the minority to prevail over the majority. Ultimately, something has to happen. So I think that the question here is, is, which is often the question we're talking about the filibuster, and especially when people talk about the filibuster as a symbol of processes that make it harder for majorities to make legislative change, is what are the conditions under which either regular kinds of legislation should be passed or major legislation should be passed? Does that mean we just have a kind of bare majority of public opinion, a bare majority of control of of Congress by one party, a small majority that crosses parties? Or is there some normative value in having that threshold be higher, um, enforcing wide widespread agreement that's i think that's you know that's a substantive question that has to be answered in a way that is separate from debates about institutions yeah i think that's important right we're, we we there's two separate questions here uh you know one is what's wrong with the senate which we could go on for a lot about and then the second question is what's the normative way in which the senate should work i mean there there are no other senates anywhere in the world that require 60 votes functionally to pass legislation out of 100. Yeah, it, but I'm not sure. It, first of all, it doesn't require it. And I think there well, are but, but, other rules. But, but functionally, it does. But what's interesting to me is that prior to 1917, there's no way to end debate. And the Senate can do lots of big stuff. And these are very polarized and partisan times and very intense yeah. issues, right? And they can do big stuff under the old rules in this war of attrition model. Those rules are still there. They're not required but, to go. But the amount of business that the Senate, the, 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 well, the complexity of government and the number of issues that the Senate should be dealing with in 100 years later is much greater. And the, the, the Senate of, of 1916, 1915 is not comparable to the Senate of today. But I would I would challenge you and suggest that the Senate of of nineteen fifteen probably did more than the Senate of twenty twenty. No, well, we could look. I don't I don't actually up. know but, the numbers. But I mean, but... in terms of the range of issues that it was dealing with, I mean, the, the the federal government was tiny. There was no all the New Deal agencies, all the World War II agencies, all the 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 Great Society and its new social regulation of the sixties and seventies. I mean, so the Senate is dealing with much more today than it was then and the whole environment of the center i mean so uh, i mean yes you can you can you can talk about how there are ways to break the filibuster but the, i mean the, the fundamental question that julia is raising is what purpose what normative purpose does it solve or, or or does it serve to have a rule that a 41 member majority can use to obstruct 59 votes so it's they can only obstruct for so long. I think it's the way I look at the filibuster, and it's they're two separate things, right? The quite the rule is how how many votes you need to end debate. In the absence of a rule, you can filibuster or you can have debate forever. But I look at it at it as the opportunity to engage in debate or to offer alternatives. And yes, you can have ulterior motives when doing those things, and you can try to stop certain things. And and that's fine. But when you phrase it in that way, it becomes a little bit different, right? It's the opportunity to participate in debate in, incidentally, a body that is supposed to operate very differently from the other chamber of Congress, the House of Representatives. I mean, that's part of the key thing of bicameralism is that the two are both constituted differently and are animated by different principles of action. And, so, it's, and it seems to me that if 
we, you know, you, you keep going down the road of, well, the leadership meets in caucus and they decide we should have a vote on this bill. So they put this bill on the floor and everybody falls in line on a procedural issue because it's party loyalty. Then all of a sudden the two houses are operating very in very similar ways. Right. And, and, that's, and that's how things are and have been for quite a while now. But to, to Julia's point, the 1964 Civil Rights Act is a lot different than the 1957 Civil Rights Act. Yes. A lot different for a lot of different reasons. But one of the big reasons is the way in which Mansfield managed that process versus the way in which Johnson managed that process. But also the way in which the civil rights movement had grown in the period between 57 and 63. And Correct, 64. which is a, which is the same underlying dynamic that's present inside the Senate when you have outliers try to force issues onto the agenda, draw attention to them, force their colleagues to acknowledge them. And then over time, what happens is that the process reconciles losers in a debate to its outcome. Well, the, the, other, the other thing that's crucial to draw a distinction between that period and, and today is that the civil rights issue split both parties. It wasn't a partisan issue. It was a South versus the rest of the country issue. And I think if we actually had filibusters, you would see very quickly that if a Republican senator stood up and tried to filibuster something on for immigration purposes, you would see very quickly that the party fractures around that. During the 2013 shutdown, when there was an ongoing effort to vote against cloture and prompt that shutdown, the Republican Party internally behind the scenes was 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 very distraught and the tension was quite high precisely because the members didn't agree on the underlying issue. And I think that's that's the beauty of a more robust freewheeling and open process where things like but you that you have that you can get when you have things like the filibuster that's actually used. I mean my contention is that the minority's not actually using it and they're not using the other powers they have either under the Senate rules. And and it's not just that the majority is powerless. It's just that the majority doesn't really seem too interested in working and, and to, to try to win. And the minority doesn't seem too interested in trying to win. Well, is it because everybody's holding out for unified government with enough votes to, to pass everything they want? The, the Godot. They're waiting for Godot. Yes. So what are the different ways to say, say I'm wrong? Say that we need to change this or we need to somehow limit it. And we have reconciliation, which is a special process under the Congressional Budget Act of 1974 that lets you set aside the supermajority thresholds required to end debate for budget-related legislation. It's difficult to game that system. Sometimes you can, but it's hard. You can do that. We have similar uh, legislation, fast-track legislation for for trade measures. Molly Riddle to the Brookings Institute has written a fabulous book called Exceptions to the Rule that details a lot of these, these exceptions to Rule 22, which is the cloture rule. Those are That's one set of options. The other option that we've seen lately in 2013 with Senate Democrats in 2017 and 2019 with Senate Republicans is what we call the nuclear option, which is the a majority of the Senate using its constitutional power to determine the chamber's rules, basically superseding or ignoring the written rules as they exist. Just kind of saying, setting them aside. And there's that option. But there are also a whole host of other reform options out there that have been proposed. Lee, you alluded to yeah, one earlier. Yeah, so I, one one proposal that, that I like is uh, Jonathan Bernstein's proposal of a super bill, which is that majority party gets one bill that is uh, filibuster proof, and then majority party won the election. They can put as much as they want into that bill, and it can't be filibustered. So there's uh, no rules which, around that bill. 
Yeah, sorry? Than, there's no rules about, there's no sort of reconciliation style rules about what that bill can and can't have. Right, right. Whereas reconciliation things have to be tax related, but I mean, there's a lot that can be tax related. It's just a straight up majority bill vote, which like, I think the majority party won. They should get one shot at passing their agenda. I think I think that's fair. James? But, uh, Julia, what do you think? What do I think about the super bill? Yeah, or other reform proposals. I like that I like the I like the idea of um of the super bill. I guess for me that is interesting because it sort of codifies the role of the majority party even more and that makes the Senate more like the House, right? Even if it gets to preserve the filibuster and its other dealings. And it to me that's another instance where you're going to push then a lot of the policy fights into the intra-party fight. And so it becomes really important um, and really high stakes, who is who is mediating that intra-party debate? I think that's fair. Although it's the place where outliers typically go to prevail in those intra-party fights uh, are outside of the party caucuses, either on the Senate floor or in the media or outside of the chamber entirely um, in a kind of grassroots push. So that it, it does further solidify control under the leaders at a time when I think everyone... I think we're starting to understand and to acknowledge the fact that the leaders can't make the Senate work the way it's currently being managed. Well, uh, but part of the reason is that they can say, we're not going to take a vote on these issues because we don't have 60 votes. The filibuster allows them the excuse to say, we're not going to vote on this, right? True. I mean, that's that's absolutely correct. I mean, so maybe they're not sincere, and they're just blaming the filibuster. Well, in yeah. that case, the filibuster is not the problem because it's the internal divisions of the party. Um, but but the filibuster allows the party to avoid having to deal with those internal divisions, right? You should want to get rid of the filibuster if you want to see those internal divisions come to the surface. Yeah, no, I think my defense of the filibuster is rooted in the fact that words have meaning and the rules should be the rules. And well, but the rules the rules change from congress to congress from year to year there's nothing set in stone about rule 22 or the 60 vote threshold i mean you could change it to 52 votes you could change it to to 78 votes right like, so i want to interject here just to point out where we we've gotten so meta on this podcast and now we're basically debating words have meaning versus words don't have meaning um <laughs> I mean, and I, mean, I agree with you Lee. there's nothing magical about about rule 22 the other thing that that i would point out about this the super bill is that to me that also seems like it has the potential to put additional pressure onto the house under the presidency onto the the courts right if you have this bill that has an easier has a lower threshold of passage i don't want to don't over exaggerate the degree to which that that threshold is is lowered but we were still talking about majority passage right yeah. um in the senate and then it still has to get through the house right but right they're so, all majority passage the question yes, is correct. how how much how many votes to end debate and the yeah. question is well how long is uh, long enough and how many proposals are enough proposals for the minority to make a decision and all of a sudden when you get rid of the filibuster you remove leverage that the minority has or senators have to to kind of enter that conversation and they have to go instead with hat in hand and the majority is probably going to do what the majority tells them in the House, and which is to go pound sand. We're not going to listen to you. And that's, you know, I, I think that leads to a more dysfunctional politics overall. And I think it ultimately, it it undermines the bicameral nature of our, of our, oh, of our but, Congress. But if, if Congress can't do anything, then we're never 
getting a chance as voters to see what the the parties are actually going to do if they're in power. All we get is gridlock and gridlock and more executive action because Congress. So the gridlock the gridlock assumes that there's two sides of equal strength that are canceling each other out, or one has a veto. But the the filibuster doesn't operate like, or is theoretically, but, but it, a, it effectively gives the minority party a veto on what happens in the Senate. But there's a great example of this. The um the last uh, so once you invoke cloture on a question, there's up to thir- up to thirty hours of debate, and at the end of that period, you vote. If senators aren't speaking prior to that, if no senator is seeking recognition or or speaking on the floor at the time, the presiding officer under the rules and precedents of the Senate is required, is required to put the question. And so what you saw, though, this is interesting with the 2019 nuclear option on uh, nominees to reduce that post-closure time to eight hours, was that the Republicans would, would lock in that 30 hours by unanimous consent. They would ask, you know, McConnell would go to Schumer and say, hey, Chuck, can I get you know, his consent to shorten this post-closure time on this deputy assistant under third secretary of the interior to four hours? And he would say, no, of course you're going to say no. He would say no. And so McConnell would then get consent to lock it in for 30 hours later. So he's setting the, f- he's turning it into a floor, not a ceiling. And Republicans are doing that. And then they bemoan the fact that they have to go through this 30-hour time period, when in reality, how many of Schumer's colleagues do you think are going to be really happy to speak on the floor all night long that night to prove a point? Because you can also, during post-closure time, senators can only speak for one hour. That's all they get. And the last point I'll make on this is at the beginning of the Trump administration, President Trump had made a lot of nominations, including um, Jeff Sessions for attorney general, but it were the cabinet-level nominees. And Progressives were very fired up, and I remember there was a period where the Republicans went all night for Tuesday and Wednesday night or Thursday night in early February, late January. And there was an interview with a Democratic senator, and I want to say uh, Chris Murphy or, or Brian Schatz, but at the end of this interview, they're like, this is great. You guys are fighting. You're going to, you know, I know you can't block these nominees anymore because there's a simple majority to confirm them, but you're fighting and that's energizing us. And how do you feel? And and the senator looked at him and said, well, I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. I don't know how much longer we can keep this up. Because the outcome was known, i.e. it only takes a simple majority to, to confirm a nominee. And it's incumbent upon them to maintain all of their colleagues out there on the floor to constantly push back against this. Filibustering is hard work. Well, so it should be hard work. What? But the question is, why isn't it? It's not the minority's fault that it's not hard work. It's the majority's fault. That's the problem. And that's so I guess my point is changing the filibuster may undermine the Senate in other ways that we don't fully appreciate, while at the same time not address the underlying problem. I mean, the, the, the filibuster has become much worse as the Senate has become much more partisan. It's become much worse as the Senate has become less interested in legislating. Well, I think those two are, are part and parcel. Julia? What should what should do your final thoughts? We got to wrap up, I think. Yeah, we got to wrap up. And now I I'm 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 listening to the debate, the points that both of you have offered, and now I'm sort of like off of my original position about the fel- filibuster as kind of allowed but rare, and I don't know. I'm I'm in a position with the filibuster where I'm very susceptible to the last argument that I've heard. But I I think that I think kind of on the on the intellectual merits, I kind of. I'm, I'm with James that the rules are the rules and words have meaning, 
Um, but also, I think on a practical level, I'm with Lee in that this is this is one more thing that makes it impossible to govern right now. So I'm I'm more conflicted than ever. Politics in question, listeners. This is what's happened. That's the sign of a good debate, <laughs> and a debate that listeners can carry on to their friends and family and and yeah, invoke cloture if necessary. Wow, nice. Thanks. All right. Thanks so I guess listening. that's that's it. I guess we're. I guess. I guess we've been filibustered by time. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly.